I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Murder in Oregon is a production of iHeartRadio. In April of 2019, federal judge John Acosta ruled in Frank Gable's favor. Here's an excerpt from his 94-page decision. Although evidence presented at trial in 1991 resulted in a guilty verdict, the court concludes that it is more likely than not that no reasonable juror would find Gable guilty in light of the totality of all the evidence uncovered since that time, particularly the newly presented evidence of witness recantations. But the state of Oregon is appealing that decision and Gable is far from free. Yeah, the case against Gable has, has been completely demolished. Uh, even the Oregonian, in one of its first stories about the judge's ruling, cited several legal experts who said uh, the state couldn't possibly retry Gable because there was no case against him left. The, the case is uh, completely insured. The one thing we know for sure about this case is that Gable didn't do it. The investigation was a cover-up. And the problem with that, of course, is that it just leaves so many unanswered questions. And it's an unsolved murder. As we've sorted through the details of the Frankie murder investigation and Frank Gable's trial, the same names surface time and time again. Perhaps one of the most significant is Johnny Krause, who you'll recall initially confessed to the murder, had detailed knowledge of Mike's wounds, and knew information about the crime scene he wouldn't have known unless he'd been there. But these things were dismissed by police. Krauss recanted and was granted immunity not to recant his recantation, and mention of all of this was excluded from Gable's trial by Judge Gregory West. 
Kraus is no longer alive, but he may have been one of only a handful of people who could answer questions about Michael's actual killer. Well, the thing about Krauss that you just can't get past is that he knew things he couldn't have known unless he'd been there, whether he did the stabbing or not. He knew where the wounds were, and of course, he knew about the man who turned and ran across the green expanse towards the state hospital and around the big green generator. He knew things that he couldn't have known otherwise. Unless he was there. Yeah. As we've covered, Kevin Frankie first learned about Krauss during a reading with a psychic. Whether you believe in psychics or not, the fact remains this psychic was right. The police did have a man in custody. She was correct about Johnny Krause, and as it would turn out, many other things. But we'll get to that later. Here's Kevin. She went by Jane Doe, and she didn't tell me what her real name was until after I met her, because she didn't want me putting her name out there. She wasn't a psychic for profit. Mm -hmm. She never charged me a penny. She was, did psychic work for the Boston Police Department, and I got referred to her by my roofing supply guy's son, worked for the Marion County Sheriff's Department. Jane had helped the Marion County Sheriff's Department a couple of times, one very recently that uh, a gentleman had disappeared and they weren't sure if he'd been abducted or what happened. And she described the area where he could be found and they found him within like 50 or 100 feet of where she told them to go. I called her, I said, I didn't tell her my name other than Kevin. I need to speak to you about my brother's death. She was describing the people that were involved in the descriptions. And the one guy is tall, good-looking, with hair combed back, kind of sandy brown hair. I didn't know any of these things or any of this stuff that she was talking about. She described the dome building to a T, and the hallway, the entryway, the entry doors, the foyer. You know, this was back before there was the Internet being used at all. And there was no way to research Mike Frankie. She only knew Kevin. Yeah, you can't get past that, really. It's whether you believe in psychics or not, she knew they had someone in custody. And she knew that his name was Johnny K. It started with a hard C or a K. This was before the Internet. I mean, she couldn't have picked it up on the news. It wasn't in the news on the East Coast. There's no way she could have known. That's true. It certainly wasn't a national news story at that point. Oh, no. Local television reporter Eric Mason believes Krauss wasn't pursued to protect others. What I think was the biggest factor in why it was that Frank Gable got convicted was that the reasonable doubt question, that is, Johnny Krauss being someone who knew details and said he'd done it, And the massive amount of information that surrounded um, the AG that represented the corrections department and all of the stuff that had been reported by Steve and by Phil and by myself, it was just as if none of that could make its way in. It only had to do with Frank Gable and what surrounded Frank Gable. So did it seem to an extent that the judge had cleansed the possibility of anything coming into the courtroom that could possibly change that? Yes, and then I think that is why the Johnny Krause story is so important to it because 
Johnny Krause not only admits to doing it, but he has information that had never been out anywhere. You really, you you really needed to have his story in there uh, to be able to provide reasonable doubt for the jury to be able to say it's very possible this other person did it, and there was no one else to look at that way. Johnny Kraus endured an extremely abusive upbringing and was a fringe character, even by the standards of Salem's criminal underworld, and not necessarily the most reliable witness. Then-reporter for the Statesman Journal, Steve Jackson, interviewed Kraus at the time. I met Johnny. Obviously, I wrote uh, some stories regarding his involvement here. You know, he was playing this for what might he uh, accomplish out of it. I don't know to this day. Um, I know he both confessed to it and then recanted his his confession. And, you know, you'd hear, oh, he he confessed again, and then he recanted again. And with that whole class of people, prison inmates, it's hard to tell. They're so used to, uh, you know, lying as a way of life that it was it was difficult. I, I didn't find him to be like some of them, which is, uh, you know, constantly conniving. And, and you just get this feeling from them that that's all they're about. Um, I, I didn't quite get that from him. One of the interviews I, when I talked to him, uh, I, I got this feeling that he was kind of scared of where he was in all of this, but I wasn't sure is that because he's guilty of murder or is it because he's afraid of the state police investigation who, um, you know, that he might be going up against their uh, their wishes. Uh, so it was, it was difficult to tell. I wouldn't have called him the brightest bulb in the, in the entire pack either, so... But Krauss's confession could very well have saved Frank Gable from being convicted of Michael Frankie's murder and sentenced to life in prison. Still, the question remains, why would Krauss have confessed to the murder in the first place? Here are Phil and Kevin. He was a very strange cat. He had a history of confessing. He liked to confess. He was brought up to feel guilty about everything. And his and one of the things that's, that's uh, noted in, in the police reports is that he would confess to the crimes he was caught for and confess to others as well. So my theory is that he was certainly there. He knew things that he couldn't have known unless he was there. Correct. He confessed because he didn't think that he would be charged with murder. He thought that he would be helpful in confessing this information that he had, the nature, number, and location of the wounds, but that it wasn't his hand that had the knife in it. But he saw enough or heard enough from Buck Burgess personally in his relationship with Buck Burgess that he could transmit that information in the form of a confession or in the form of, I know what happened. Remember Buck Burgess? He was the former cellmate of Conrad Nick Garcia, the inmate who claimed he'd been approached by Tim Natividad to kill Michael Frankie at the request of the Assistant Attorney General, Scott McAllister. Buck Burgess was also married to Melody Rothschild Burgess Garcia, who was openly muling drugs into the prison. The same Melody Garcia who sold her daughter, Carrie, to Tim Natividad. The Carrie Rothschild, who places Scott McAllister in her home, meeting with Tim Natividad and Melody. Buck Burgess lived at the address Krauss told the DA and police 
the knife that killed Michael Frankie came from. Back to Phil and Kevin and Johnny Krause. I think he was there. I, I think he was probably... He could have uh, very well have been I, I, I think he was... Uh, he was definitely watch, watch, across he, the street. He, he was definitely yeah. across the street, so he could have been, you know, right there at the parking lot. And, and of course, that is one of the main arguments in, in the habeas corpus petition that got Gable out, that here was someone who'd confessed to the murder and knew things he couldn't have known unless he was there, and he didn't come up in the trial. He was not allowed, his name was not allowed in, as Natividad's was not allowed in. Pat Frankie questioned Krauss in prison. I think Krauss was just a creepy guy who eavesdropped and heard more than he probably should have about what went on. He had a reputation of being kind of a window peeper, sneaky son of a bitch, and heard that after the fact, and uh, I don't think he did it. Back to Phil. Whatever it was, you know, whatever his role in it was, and I think he was there looking out. He was a lookout that night. I think that um, he may have been the taller of the two men that Hunsaker saw that night, the one who turned and ran. In fact, that's what he said he did. He ran to the medical building and around the big green generator, quite possibly the one who turned and walked back to the dome building at a leisurely pace, as Hunsaker said, was Natividad. Years later, Kevin tracked Johnny Krause down and questioned him. Probably about a year after the trial, so we're talking about two years, two and a half years after Mike was killed, I got a hold of Johnny Lee Krause. So I called and he wasn't a bushel of information. He was uh, very tentative, uh, you know, what do you want? I just want to be left alone. There was a, a long pause and he says, you don't understand. They can reach out and tap you any where you are any day. He said, I just want to be left alone. I don't even know if this is fucking you talking to me. And he hung up. So his implication was if he spoke to you, they could kill him? Yeah, that was the implication. Back to Phil and Tim Natividad. The reason I think that it's very likely that uh, Natividad is the man in the pinstripe suit is that he resembles the composite drawing that the DA's office tried to keep under wraps for such a long time. And then, of course, you have Greg Kelsey's story, which he told to Nigel Jacobs, how he took Tim Natividad to the dome building that night, picked him up later. He had blood on him. And this is a story that uh, Kelsey had told people in the underworld shortly after the murder. So it, it makes the most sense, yes. Here's local television reporter Eric Mason. So that sketch that everybody wonders, who is this person right there at the door of the dome building just before Michael Frankie is stabbed? Who is that man? And Liz Godlove identifies that man as Rooster, also known as Tim Tividad. I strongly believe that, yeah. Unless you can show me otherwise. Unfortunately, I believe that. And that... He also knows details, and he also makes statements that are indicative of a person who has murdered Mike Frankie. But as all of this comes out, it's clear what happens. Then the police do basically say, listen, Tim Tevedad's dead. What do we do with that? We can't make any sense out of that. And so all of the time that they put into putting that sketch out everywhere seems to be just like flushed down a toilet. 
Here are Phil and Kevin. And for a while, they tried, you know, after we, we were, Jackson and I were making an issue of this in, in, the, uh, in the papers, they tried to say, put out the story that it was a Xerox salesman who'd been there working that night. I found the Xerox salesman, and he was he had reddish, wiry reddish hair, uh, and he said he was wearing a tweed coat that night. So, I mean, that's another lie. Why are they lying about the man in the pinstripe suit? And they maintained that lie throughout the entire case even after it was abundantly clear that it was not the copier repairman. When it was, you know, patently false, they didn't want yeah. the public to know who the man in the pinstripe suit was. Yeah. Because once that name comes out, who that person is, then you have a nest of thieves that get investigated that starts pushing buttons with government people. Because if he was recognized, it would have led to people who would have led to people who did not want to be exposed. Exactly. You couldn't possibly pretend to know who killed Michael Frankie without knowing who the man in the pinstripe suit was. And based on the number of people who have connected him to the murder and noted an undeniable resemblance, the likelihood is that Tim Natividad was the man in the pinstripe suit. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies 
personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think, it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Natividad's former drug partner and cellmate, Greg Kelsey Johnson, also linked Natividad to the murder. Here's the reporter he spoke to, the Willamette Week's Nigel Jaquess. So Greg Johnson contacted me from uh, a local jail. He was in jail in an adjacent county, and he said that he had information about who really killed um, Michael Frankie and how. I was skeptical, uh, as you would be, but I decided I would go. He, he said enough to make me willing to go see him. And I went and saw him, and, and uh, he had enough information and enough specific details and a, and a good enough story that I think I went and saw him four times. And he, he essentially told me that he had an association with a uh, meth dealer in Salem named Tim Natividad. Johnson told Jaquis that Natividad not only asked Johnson to drive him to the dome building the night of Mike's murder, but later also claimed to have driven him to pick up an envelope of cash from a Department of Corrections official. And Jaquis found Johnson believable in that many other aspects of his story checked out. I had a huge trove of documents at that time, uh, and Johnson was in those documents. Those were police reports and interview transcripts and the defense attorney's files. Um, Many things that Johnson said I I could corroborate. Liz, who was Natividad's girlfriend at the time, also finds Johnson's story plausible. I bought it. Personally, I did. I believed it. They were friends. They were drug partners. They were buddies. And she confirms that Natividad came into a substantial amount of money after Frankie's murder. He didn't tell me where the money came from, but he did come into money. We later found out that he hid it in in my bathroom, the apartment where Tim died. He hid it in the fan of the bathroom. There was a story that Tim's brother got $40,000 out of the bathroom vent of Tim's money. My sister Karen is the one that cleaned my apartment out when I went to jail. And Karen goes, it's so weird, Liz. The apartment manager came in and was yelling at me for taking apart the bathroom vent. And I said, I didn't do it. You know, you leave me alone. I'm not taking the apartment apart. I'm getting Liz's things out of here. I'm like, oh my God. Putting two and two together, that was a true story. Tim Natividad died in a violent domestic dispute just two weeks after Mike's murder. But his name has remained linked to the crime for the past three decades, very notably by Conrad Garcia, the inmate Kevin Frankie met with at a Portland halfway house. He said that he felt guilty that Mike was dead, that he could have prevented it if he'd opened his mouth sooner. And he started crying. And I started crying to see him crying. And he apologized to me that he didn't stop it. He said, your brother was a good man, and he shouldn't have died. And I could have prevented it, and I didn't. 
And I said, how could you have prevented it? And he said, what I told the police was not everything that I could have told them. I knew specifically that Tim Natividad wanted me to kill Mike Frankie, not just a big guy with corrections. It was specifically Mike Frankie. It would prove just one of the many unusual tips from many unusual sources Kevin has received over the years. Another would come via a mysterious package delivered to the Frankie family Salem-based attorney, Steve Krasick. He says, hey, I just got a package delivered to my office. And I drive down there and open it up, and there's a letter there, handwritten. It said, I knew your brother was killed because he knew too much and he was stepping on the wrong toes and things like this. I think I know who did it, but I can't prove who did it, but I might be able to help point you in the right direction and get you the information because I was involved with these people. And if you want to know more about it, then you'll meet me at the uh, Holiday Inn Casino in Reno, Nevada, uh, Friday at 3 o'clock. If you're not there, then all bets are off. I will never talk to you again. And Krasik says, you're not going to that, are you? And I said, God, I've got to, Steve. And he says, you're not going to that. This sounds like fish bait. You're going down there, to you're just go put a fucking bullet in your head. I had the whole thing in the FedEx envelope, and I took it home. And I remember talking to Phil Stanford, reading that letter to him and stuff like that over the phone. Yeah, he told me about this, and we were both aware that it could be a complete setup. They'd tried to kill him before. It was just too obvious that uh, this could be another example of it. I knew he, how nervous he was, and uh, of course I, I was uh, nervous too. And I'm looking at the FedEx envelope, and I flip it over, and there's an address on the back of the envelope that is reverse printed that I can see if I hold it up sideways. And I write the address down, and I get a uh, atlas map for Reno, and there's a street address for this thing in Reno. And it's got his apartment number and the street address, and I thought, I think this is the son of a bitch. Instead of meeting at the Holiday Inn, now I know where I need to go meet with him. And I borrowed a, uh, a white Eldorado convertible, and Liz and I took off for Reno and went down to an apartment. Liz waited outside. I said, you know, give me 15 minutes and come up or call the cops. Kevin went upstairs, his hand hovering over his gun. And I went and knocked on the door, and the door opened up, and this guy was standing there. And he was about 5'10", and kind of barrel-chested, around 40-ish. And I said, are you JR? And he said, yeah. And I said, I'm Kevin Frankie. And he leaned back, and he started to reach around, and I pulled my gun out, and I said, don't you fucking move. And he says, I'm just getting my coat, and we'll go down to the lobby and talk. And I said, I'll get your coat. And I shut the door and got his coat, made sure he didn't have a gun. And we went down to the lobby and talked. JR told Kevin he was a former reserve sheriff's deputy and claimed certain correction officials were actively involved in drug running and prostitution rings. JR said he moonlit as a security guard at a gated home overlooking Reno. 
and that Michael Frankie had visited that house once with Scott McAllister. And he said, I was running outside security. I wasn't allowed to come into the house except for a break or to use the bathroom. And I remember walking by and I could see in there the windows were kind of tinted because it looks out onto the lake and the lake reflects back up onto the thing. I hear lake and the house and security and everything started to, I'm thinking, oh shit, Jane. Jane was the psychic Kevin visited, the one who described a house on a lake where his brother's killers were discussing his murder. J.R. claimed to have witnessed a confrontation one night involving Frankie and a group of men. And I can hear him yelling at your brother, it was like that before you got here and it'll be like that when they drag you out of here. And McAllister was behind your brother. It looked like he was either restraining him or holding an arm. And there was a lot of anger in there. And I had to keep moving because I couldn't stop. That would make him suspicious. But I think there's something there that you need to look at. After the meeting with JR, Kevin and Liz drove to that house, which Jane, the psychic, had described in detail down to the gates that surrounded it. From the house deck, you can look out and see the lake. And it's the house on the lake with the video cameras and the iron gates. And there's two guys in a pickup truck. One guy gets out and he's got a uh, Model 94 Winchester. And he comes walking over to the car and he says, can I help you? And I said, well, I'm from Oregon and I was looking for property for sale. And he says, do you see any fucking for sale signs? And I said, nope. So I said, well, look, if anything comes up for sale, would you mind giving me a call? And I hand him a business card. And it was one of Mike's business cards from the Department of Corrections. And he looks at it, and he looks at me, and he starts walking backwards to the truck. And he, very quickly, he goes up and he has the buzzer, and he's on the phone. And I get out of there. Kevin believes that that was the house Michael Frankie had gone to visit on the ill-fated ski trip, the one he abruptly returned from, shaken. Called him up later and I said, how is the snow? And he said, I never got on the hill. And I said, what do you mean? He says, I never got on the fucking hill. And that was, whew, he did not want to talk about it. He did start saying, I've got to replace people. Uh, I've got to start surrounding myself with people that I can trust. That ski trip would have occurred a year before Mike's murder. And afterwards, according to multiple sources, Frankie and the corrections lawyer, Assistant AG Scott McAllister, were very much on the outs. Scott McAllister left Oregon for Utah just two weeks before Frankie was killed. And that's where Linda Parker, McAllister's former secretary and girlfriend, claims to have overheard him talking about Mike's murder. Scott was talking to Grace and Harold. He said, yeah, it was really stupid about Frankie's murder because it was supposed to look like a suicide, but was really, pardon my language, fucked up or effed up. Harold and Scott went on conversing about it And Harold said that it was no real loss because nobody liked Frankie anyway. And now that Frankie was out of the picture, Harold could use the Oregon Department of Corrections again as a reference because nobody would be there to 
soil his name. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. To this day, Michael Frankie's death remains an unsolved murder. And thanks to a federal judge's ruling, the man imprisoned for the past three decades for that murder is finally free. But though the case against Frank Gable has been demolished, instead of investigating the people responsible for the murder... Oregon's Attorney General is appealing Gable's ruling on a legal technicality. Why are they appealing the judge's decision? Well, whether it's just a reflexive, bureaucratic, cover-your-ass response or pure politics, because you have to remember that Ellen Rosenblum, the the state's AG, uh, was a protege 
of Neil Goldschmidt, who was so instrumental in the original cover-up. Uh, it, it's got to be one of the ugliest aspects of this whole case. Here's the Portland Tribune's Jim Redden. It's an unsolved murder, you know. Uh, I believe Frank Gable is innocent. Uh, the judge has said he's probably innocent, which is a pretty amazing statement from a judge. If he is innocent, then the real killer has never been caught. If it's Natividad, he's dead. If it's Johnny Krause, he's dead. If it's somebody else, maybe they're not dead. Here's reporter Nigel Jaquess. Oregon's a state with a low rate of violent crime. Most of the crimes that take place are not this kind of crime. That had a level of political intrigue, that had a level of being connected to this golden boy governor. Um, so even today, people don't even know who Michael Frankie is. But there hasn't, in the 30 years since he was killed, been anything like this. Any killing is horrible killing, but but it's just, uh, it, it is unique, and I think a lot of people were never satisfied that it was solved, and they're even less satisfied today. Here's former state Senator Jim Hill's take. It, it, it's hard to imagine how much time has gone by. But many people have no idea, they don't know anything about Michael Frankie. And so it's important that these things keep coming up and doing things like you all are doing to let people know, yeah, this did happen, and it happened, it happened right here. It's unsolved, um, but at least some of this has come to light rather than having it left where the perpetrators want it to be left. They said, here's this guilty guy, really, that, and that's all that it is. Now we know better. I always felt that as time went on, there might be people who would say things now that they would have been afraid to talk about under those circumstances earlier. And so here we are. Former State Representative Chuck Sides agrees. I would uh, hope that the bigger story is out now. The judge validated it. Now people can't ignore it. We now know both locally and nationally, that the Justice Department fabricates. So do the cops. That shouldn't shock me, but it does. So I don't expect that people are going to ever totally accept now what's being said honestly and for the first time. But eventually they will, because they'll be reminded and reminded and reminded. Kevin Frankie believes that while one hand held the knife, many others had a hand in Mike's murder. This wasn't something that Tim sat around one night and dreamed up and said, I think I'll go kill Mike Frankie. Somebody put him up to it. So those are the people that are more guilty because they did this and because they were protecting their own self-interest and they're covering their own asses to get rid of Mike. Does that make them less culpable because they didn't have the knife in their hands and they had some other person do it? Uh, no, those are the people that are the biggest fucking slime balls in the world. And they had their freedom and their liberties and their life, 
because they had Tim Nativity kill my brother. And that, it's an insult. It's a, a slap in the face. Nativides was another life they were willing to throw away. Another victim, mm -hmm. if you will. And it's hard for me to say that because he's a, a psychopathic killer. We may never be able to force balance from the scales of justice in regards to Michael Frankie's murder. But we have now placed a very large spotlight on those who've hidden their roles in his death under the protective shadows of power, privilege, and corruption for far too long. Here's Phil. It's obviously an open case. Gable didn't do it, someone else did it. But uh, it, it's also obvious that the state is not interested in uh, pursuing it. So what did you want to do? What did you hope this podcast would accomplish? Well, most immediately, of course, to draw attention to what the state is still trying to do to Gable. It, it's, it's really unconscionable. And maybe let Ellen Rosenblum know she can't get away with it. You know, the state of Oregon could do the right thing. They could open the case. They could go after the people who've hidden behind their privilege and their positions. And they could do that because there is no statute of limitations on murder. Yeah, but I know they're not going to do it. Governments never, never admit they're wrong, especially when the wrongs have been so egregious as this. The cover-up's been going on for 30 years, and I, I fully expect it to continue. I can only hope that this podcast has made people who have reason to feel guilt very uncomfortable. I certainly concur. <laughs> yes. At the very least, I hope we can do that and maybe make a difference at the margins. The one thing that has to be addressed right now, of course, is the state's attempt to put Gable back in prison, even though it's obvious that he didn't commit the crime. For both Frankie brothers, pursuing justice for Mike's murder also includes correcting the injustice of Frank Gable's conviction. Mike would have just been livid knowing that there was an innocent man dying in prison every day. And, you know, my I had two fears. One, that Frank would kill himself or that Frank would be killed. And the joy of uh, the day that he got, I got the news that he was going to be released. It was, you know, better than any Christmas. It was amazing. And that was when I talked to my brother and I said, let's set up a GoFundMe account and see if we can raise some funds to help Frank transition from 30 years of hell into a decent life with his new life and a new life. The GoFundMe account is up and running, and there's money trickling in. We've got over $6,000 right now. The state threw another wrench into the gears. They weren't satisfied that an innocent man was freed. So they're appealing the judge's orders to release him. And there is now a petition at change.org to petition the Attorney General, Ellen Rosenblum, to have the state withdraw their appeal and declare Frank an innocent man. Here's Michael's big brother, Pat Frankie, on Mike's legacy. 
I had a letter that a young man wrote me, and he said, you don't know me, but I was 17, 16, 17-year-old 17 punk sitting in a waiting area, waiting to go before a judge for a sentencing, and your brother walked through, and he stopped, and he said, kid, you're going to make a big decision here in about five minutes. If you choose to be a hard-ass and smart aleck, you're going to never get out of prison. He said he didn't need to stop and talk to me. He was just passing through, but he said it really affected me. I thought about it, went in with a whole different attitude, did my time, got clean, came out, got a scholarship to the Santa Fe Community College. He said, I tell my dad all the time, Judge Frankie saved my life. He said, I'd still be in a joint if I hadn't listened to him. That was the kind of guy he was. Here's how Elise Clausen, Mike's deputy director, would like to remember Michael Frankie. As a friend and as a brilliant guy that, whose life was ended way too soon because he had a lot to give to the criminal justice world, not just in Oregon, but probably anywhere in the United States. This podcast is a tribute to Michael Frankie and to the love and loyalty of his brothers, Pat and Kevin, who've spent the last three decades fighting to expose the people responsible for his death. We'd like to give the final word to Michael Frankie, the man certain individuals made great effort to silence. For those people who think of the corrections department as my problem, please remember that the people under the jurisdiction of the Department of Corrections are people who spend a lot of time in the community. In fact, the vast majority of them are in the community right now. I spent enough time as a juvenile judge and in juvenile corrections to recognize that we got a lot better shot at them, especially in those single-digit years, uh, than we do when they come into my system. The uh, Department of Corrections is not my operation. It's our operation. by Lauren Bright Pacheco and Phil Stanford. Executive producers are Noel Brown, Lauren Bright Pacheco, and Phil Stanford. Supervising producer and lead editor is Taylor Shacoin. Sound design by Tristan McNeil. Story editing by Matt Riddle. Written by Phil Stanford, Matt Riddle, and Lauren Bright Pacheco. Music written and performed by the Diamond Street Players and mixed by Taylor Shacoin. With music supervision by Noel Brown. Additional music by Tristan McNeil. Archival elements courtesy of KGW in Portland, Oregon, the station behind the podcast Urge to Kill. Murder in Oregon is a production of iHeartRadio. I'm 
Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.